Well, brothers and sisters, it's good for the soul to be with you again this Lord's Day evening. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we need you, that we need a whole host of things, but our greatest need is to hear from your word. So we pray this morning or this evening that you would speak to us, that you by the power of your spirit would show us the glory of Christ from these pages of scripture. We pray that if we need correction, you would correct us. If we need the gift and grace of repentance, you would grant that to us. If we need comfort, would you give that to us? And we ask that you would do all of these things for the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Recently, the legendary recording artist, Tina Turner, who was known as the queen of rock and roll, died in her home in Switzerland. Tina Turner, as many of you might know, had many hit songs, but her most played and most well-known song was the song, What's Love Got to Do With It? In this song, Tina Turner does the opposite of what so many artists in her day and age uh, would normally do. Most artists extol and celebrate love But Tina Turner in this song communicates 
the desire for a relationship where love is not the substance that holds the relationship together. Other songs speak about how all we need is love, but Tina Turner asked the question, what's love got to do with it? And this evening, as we turn to 1 Corinthians 13, we find Paul telling us that when it comes to our life together as a church family, that when it comes to how we interact with one another, love has everything to do with it. That what should characterize all that we do as the people of God is the distinguishing mark of love. Over at the church I'm at, Redeemer, we've been thinking through in our sermon series on the the marks of the church. We've talked about the the centrality of the right preaching of God's word, the right administration of the sacraments, uh, the importance of church discipline. And all of those things are things we are trying to promote. But one of the marks that we haven't mentioned, that we are beginning to mention even more, is this mark of love. But if we have all of those three marks of a healthy church, but if we are absent in love, then all those things are completely pointless. So this evening, I want us to see the primacy of love as a distinguishing mark of a healthy church. And I know of no better text to help us think through this kind of idea than 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, I know many of you have likely heard these words before. You maybe have read them in your scripture passages, or you've heard them preached or read at weddings, or you've received a card that has it written on it. And these words, as you know, are simply stunning. They read poetically, and they strike something in all of us because we all have this insatiable desire to be loved. And 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a clear and comprehensive picture of what love looks like, particularly the love that we share as members of the same local congregation. There are three things I want you to see in this text this evening. I want you to see the priority of love in verses 1 to 3. I want you to see the power of love in verses 4 to 7. Then I want you to see the permanence of love in verses 8 to 13. So the priority of love, the power of love, and the permanence of love. So first, the priority of love. In order to understand and feel the weight of what the Apostle Paul is saying in these 13 verses, we need to have some sort of understanding of the reason why Paul is writing this letter. We need to have some understanding of the situation that is taking place in the congregation in Corinth. The church in Corinth had a lot of significant problems. This church, quite frankly, was a hot mess. There were not a lot of individuals who were lining up to be the pastor of the church in Corinth. If you read through the letter, you'll see, you, see, you see Paul calling out and addressing a number of different problems. First, there was the problem of factions. The church was divided around who was their favorite preacher. Some would say that they are followers or they love to hear words being shared from the Apostle Paul. 
Others love Apollos or perhaps Cephas. And those who were, who were super spiritual, who were above all of the fray, they would say that I like hearing words from Jesus. There's a problem of suing fellow church members, that individuals were not dealing with their conflict inside the church, but instead were dragging one another to court and bringing shame upon the name of Christ. There's the problem of sexual immorality. The church was tolerating a sexual ethic that ran counter to the scriptures. There was also the issue with the Lord's table. It seems that the poor were being excluded from the table while the rich ate and drank until they were satisfied. But it seems that one of the primary problems that demanded Paul's attention was the problem of the church's fighting over spiritual gifts. The fight was basically over whose spiritual gift was the best spiritual gift or whose spiritual gift was the the most necessary for the life of the congregation. Paul spends chapters 12 to 14 dealing with that very issue. And in chapter 13, the Apostle Paul tells them that what is most needed, what is necessary for their life together as a congregation, and what is of primary importance is that they love one another. That whatever their gift is, whatever the, ro- the role they play in the life of the church, no matter what it is, what is essential is the posture of love. In fact, without love, all of their gifting It's pointless. Listen to how he words it in verses 1 to 3. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul speaks of five different situations, and each one of these situations, he highlights a spiritual gift that he lists in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And he's saying that if you do all of these great things, if you are eloquent like the angels, If you can preach down heaven itself, if you have supernatural wisdom and insight into the will of God, if you have a faith that is deep and strong as to remove mountains, if you give everything you own to the poor, and even if you become a martyr for the Christian faith, but if you lack love, then everything you've done is meaningless. You gain nothing. You are like a noisy gong or a clashing cymbal. You are loud but empty. These verses should challenge us because Paul is saying that you can do all of these powerful things and yet do them without love. One of the things you often hear in, in church circles, maybe particularly in more evangelical or reformed churches, is this statement that love is not a feeling. It's an action. Have you heard that before? 
This is one of those statements that, that, that seeks to push back on seeing love as something that is just of sentimental value. It is arguing that love actually has to do some things. And it's important to understand that love is more than what we do. Love is not less than what we do, but it's also love is more than what we do. That the Apostle Paul is arguing that you can do all of these great actions and you can still do them Without love, love is a disposition of the heart towards God and towards others. Actions such as laying down your life or teaching others or giving away your riches away are not sufficient on their own. Love is necessary. Paul is saying that the, the gifts that are present in the congregation are, is not is what of primary importance. Love is what is of primary importance. The Apostle John would affirm Paul's words here. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, John writes that we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. For John, a tangible sign that someone has moved from death to life, that someone has been raised from the dead, is the fact that they love particularly those in their congregation. Friends, you, I don't know you, but I've heard that you are a a gifted church, that there's so much ministry that takes place both formally and informally here. And I pray that those gifts and ministries would only increase, but even more than that, I pray that as a congregation, your love would abound more and more and more. If you look at Paul's letters, In the New Testament, you'll see that a lot of times, most of the time, the Apostle Paul will let the congregation know that he's praying for them, and then he will tell them what he's praying for them. And one of the prayers that he consistently slips in for multiple churches is that their love would grow, that even churches that are loving can always grow in their love for one another. In Philippians, he tells them that his prayer is that their love may abound more and more. In Colossians chapter 1, he tells the congregation that I thank God for you because you love all the saints. Friends, one of the best things you can pray for, for your own local church, is that you would grow in love. That as you grow together into Christ who is your head, your love would deepen and widen and strengthen over time. That's one of those prayers that the Lord is delighted to answer. Jesus said that all people will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. One of Jesus's priorities before suffering and heading to the cross was to instruct his disciples on the necessity of their love for one another. And beloved, if this was a priority for Jesus, it is also to be a priority for his people. So that's the priority of love. But secondly, notice the power of love, the power of love. That's our second point, the power of love. In verses four to seven, Paul tells us what this love looks like. He is not content to just command us to love, but he wants us to understand practically how this love manifests itself in the life of the church. And he does this by giving seven positive statements and eight negative statements. Seven times he tells us what love does, 
And then eight times he tells us what love does not do. Paul is seeking to give us this full and and comprehensive picture of love. And what he tells us is that love is resilient. As we mentioned earlier, love is more than an action, but love does require action. It requires a, a certain type of grit. And you can see this on display if you have ever been around couples who are healthy and they have been married for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, that they speak as if they are still head over heels in love with each other. And at the same time, there is a tenacity to their love, that that love is not just sprouting everywhere. That love has a certain type of depth to it. And Paul demonstrates that for us in verses 4 to 7. Take a look at the beginning of verse 4. Paul says, love is patient. The King James Version says that love suffers long. Love is long-suffering. It is the opposite of being short-tempered. Love is willing to deal with people for a long period of time. It's the willingness to put in the time to work through things with people. Love refuses to quickly write someone off. Think about the person who annoys or frustrates you. Or the person who seems just not to give it. Get, get it. Love requires that you are patient with them. That that patient flows from a heart of love gives people time to grow. Love doesn't believe that people will change overnight. The next thing that Paul says is love is kind. That in the face of tension, of relational hardship, of disagreement, love calls, calls us to respond with goodness, to give of itself in acts of service towards another, another person. Love responds to pettiness, not with more pettiness, but with kindness. Love seeks to bless other people. Paul moves on to say love does not envy. Envy is another word for coveting. It's this desire to have what others have. And this seems to be a sin that was particularly rampant in the church of Corinth. Individuals were envious of the gifts of others, which led to conflict. You see, envy makes it impossible to rejoice at God's work in the life of other people. You can diagnose whether your heart is gripped by envy by asking and answering the question, can I truly rejoice with those who are rejoicing? Can I rejoice when someone gets or has something that I want so bad, but for whatever reason, the Lord has not seen fit to give it to me? Beloved, love is content with its own circumstances. Next, Paul says that love does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Each of these are woven together with this common thread, and that thread is this. Love requires humility. To put another way, humility is the soil in which the flower of love grows. 
Love is, is self-denying. It does not put itself first or ask questions like what is in it for me? Love, according to Philippians 2, does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, it considers others more significant than itself. Love is not consumed with itself. It actually forgets itself because it's so occupied with other people. Over the past week, I've been reading uh, Tim Keller's little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And in this book, I think it's Tim Keller at his best. He says this about the relationship between humility and love. He says this, the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humbled person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to the thought such as I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. Beloved, does this idea of self-forgetfulness describe you? Are you consumed with yourself? Paul says in the second half of verse 5 that love is not irritable, or resentful. Love is not easily angered or easily agitated. For some of us, it can be tempting to believe that irritability is just a natural part of our personality. But friends, when you are in settings or are around people who irritate you, love requires that you fight against that. Love is also not resentful. It doesn't keep an account of other people's sins and faults. It doesn't hold people's sins against them and seeks to use it against them when the time is right. It doesn't view people only by their mistakes. And Paul goes on in verse 6 and he says that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Friends, love does not rejoice or indulge or celebrate or delight and sin. There are some things that love cannot celebrate, affirm, or promote. Love at times will have you look someone square in the eyes, often with tears, and say to your friend, friend, I love you, but I cannot affirm or co-sign the decisions that you are making. And if you've ever had to have that conversation when you look in someone's eyes and say that, and then they respond to you that you are unloving, That's one of the hardest things to hear. But the Apostle Paul tells us that love only rejoices in the truth. Friends, we don't get to redefine what love is. Only God defines what love is. And love in scripture is always tethered together with righteousness, justice, obedience, and truth. Love rejoices in the truth. It finds beauty in the things that are good, right, and and true. And Paul concludes this list with a summary statement in verse 7 where he said, Love bears all things, 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Notice that repetition of all things, that there is not a situation where love is not required, that love is to be the animating principle for all the things that we do towards one another. And friends, just think about this for a moment. Can you imagine what it would be like if we were able to love one another in these ways? How powerful would your witness be to the surrounding communities if all of these descriptions of love were descriptions of the way that you interacted with one another at all times? See, love is a powerful thing. It draws others, th- it draws others in that the, that the love that Paul describes here is something that we all desperately want to be true. But the problem is, And if you truly allow these words to simmer in your soul, to look at you and really rest upon you, then you realize that this picture of love does not adequately describe any of us. Imagine with me if you're sitting in the pews in the church of Corinth. You know all the things that are taking place in the life of the congregation, and you have Paul or someone reading Paul's letter, and you're hearing again and again all these things, and then you get to this chapter on love. You could hear this holy hush upon the congregation. You can see that Paul is is, is saying that, that the things I'm requiring you to do are things that you are not doing. Who among us can stand and say that these verses describe them who is willing to say that I am patient and kind that I'm not irritable at all that I I don't insist on my own way I'm certainly only rejoicing in the truth and friends this list gives you and I ample reasons to confess and to repent of the ways that we have fallen short of the standard of love but we need to ask and answer an important question. That question is this, how do we begin to love in the ways that Paul describes here in our text? And the answer is this, that if you step back and you really look at this list that Paul is describing, that as you look at Paul's whole description of love, as you see the portrait that he is painting, you will see that Paul is giving us a portrait of the character of Jesus. That Paul speaks of love as all, almost as if love is, is, is personified. And friends, that is the case. Love indeed is a person, and his name is Jesus. You see, Jesus is patient. You think about in the Gospels all the times that his disciples never seem to get it together. And Jesus was patient with them. But even more than that, you know this to be true. Jesus has been patient to you. He has not wiped his hands clean of you. Jesus is kind, and that kindness has been demonstrated towards you. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He did not insist on his own way. But in humility, he counted you and I more significant than himself. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is Jesus who describes himself as gentle and lowly or gentle and humble in heart. 
Jesus was not irritable. He was, he was in situations all the time that would naturally make you and I irritated. But Jesus wasn't irritable. He wasn't resentful. He didn't keep an account of our sin, but he cleared our account and credited to us his own righteousness. He never rejoiced in wrongdoing because he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. But how can you grow in your love in the way that Paul describes here in these verses? We do so first by realizing that we have been loved in these specific ways by Jesus Christ. That when you see the deep, deep love of Jesus, when you see the manner in which he has loved you, when you see how he has served you and given himself to you, over time your heart will be melted and you will love because you have first been loved. Friends, that's the power of Jesus' love. And when you come in contact with his love, it cannot help but change you. And it creates a people who love in the ways that Paul mentions in verses 4 to 7. Seeing the priority of love, the power of love. But lastly and, and briefly, we'll look at the permanence of love. The permanence of love. Take a look at those first three verses, or first three words in verse 8. Love never ends. Paul says love is important because love ain't going anywhere. Love lasts forever. And Paul communicates this truth by comparing it to the temporary nature of spiritual gifts. And then he gives us two illustrations for us to understand that point more fuller. Take a look at verses 8 to 9. Paul says love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Paul is simply saying that the gifts that the church in Corinth is obsessing over, gifts of knowledge, of prophecy, of tongues, and the list could go on and on. He's saying one day those gifts will no longer be necessary. The only gift that will exist, the only thing that will be needed is love. One writer describes heaven as a world of love. In heaven, our spiritual gifts won't be needed. They won't be necessary. You know what I'm not going to be doing in heaven? I am not going to be preaching a sermon to any of you because you will have the true substance when you see Christ face to face. That when you are bound together with him and the bonds of love that will never cease, the various spiritual gifts that we have will no longer be needed. Paul illustrates this in verses 11 to 12. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave away childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul's point is that the gifts played a certain role when it came to our immaturity and limitations. But again in heaven, when this age passes away and rolls into a new age, All the gifts that we have won't be necessary because we will have what the gifts always pointed to. We will have Christ and he will be our God 
and we will be his people. Paul concludes in verse 13. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Friends, what does love have to do with it? It has everything to do with it because it is the only thing that will never pass away. As we come to a close in our time together in God's word, I find that this text is always an appropriate text to allow a few moments to confess our sins to the Lord. And as we confess our sins, as we lay out the various reasons that we have fallen short, the various ways that we have been loveless, I encourage you, before I pray out, to have a few moments of silent confession. And in silent confession, don't don't lay out all the reasons why you have been loveless. Don't lay out why this person is hard to love, but specifically and particularly confess your sin to the Lord and then grab a hold of new of the great mercy that belongs to you in Jesus Christ. So let's take a few moments to confess and then I will pray us out and we will receive the Lord's benediction. Heavenly Father, we, your people, confess that we indeed have fallen short of your standard of love. But as we look at our hearts in light of the the list that is laid out for us in 1 Corinthians 13, we can say that we haven't been patient or kind and the list could go on and on. So we ask that you would forgive us of all our sins and that you would wash us new in the gospel of your Son. And we thank you for the fact that your love for us does not depend on how faithful we've been to 1 Corinthians 13. So we thank you for the merits of Christ, and we ask that you would continue to apply it into our lives. But Lord, we also confess that we have reason to rejoice because there are various ways that we are growing together in love. So by the power of your spirit, would you only increase that over time? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and receive the Lord's blessing.